FanDuel was the perfect bullpen deal in a category called fantasy sports that no one ever made any money from Edinburgh, Scotland, and with a husband and wife founding team. I mean, you just violated like three of the perfect venture rules. And so when Nigel, the CEO, pitched people back in 2011 when we did the deal, he pitched 78 venture funds and got 77 no. several successful startups, Paul Martino, Duncan Davidson, and Rich Melman decided to start a different kind of company, a venture capital fund. Starting a successful VC firm requires differentiation. They found a gap in the market, allowing them to start a fund with differentiation based on stage versus lifecycle approach. Bullpen successfully takes a stage-focused approach, creating a post-seed category. Bullpen truly gives attention to contrarian vice markets and founders that many VC firms are unable to or written off based on their experience and pattern matching. I've been advisor to Bullpen for a few years and I've seen their approach in action. I've seen how a perfect Bullpen deal comes about with a combination of math and art together. Let's hear Paul Martino's personal journey and how a VC firm continues to stay competitive as it grows. I've particularly enjoyed this conversation because Hearing my friends' journeys accelerates my learning that I can apply right away as I grow my own fund, Array Ventures. Welcome to Array Podcast, the platform to discover hacks and skills you need at different stages of building your business. I'm your host, Shruti Gandhi, founder and managing partner of Array Ventures. Array Ventures invests in founders focused on solving problems, leveraging big data, artificial intelligence, and machine learning. Visit us on array.vc. What's the post-seed thesis and why are you so bullish on it? So post-seed started as a math problem. Way back in the day, 09, 10, there were only 20, 30, 40 seed funds. And now there are 380 of them. And that happened over the last seven years. And so I'm a quant jock by training. I'm a high-performance computing math geek dude. And my buddy Mike Maples over at Floodgate said to me, look, there's this thing going on with seed. You should go look at it. Maybe you should come join me at Floodgate. And I was like, no, I don't want to be a venture person. But what it got me doing is it got me doing this math problem, which was looking at what the supply-demand imbalance would be in the future with this huge explosion in seed funds. It was not hard to predict. But what was hard to do was actually quit your job and decide to go start a fund and figure out how the hell to invest in the post-seed stage. So while the supply-demand imbalance was clear on post-seed, it wasn't like someone showed us a book and said, well, here's the kinds of things you need to do. Yeah. So we had to, we had to not only decide to invest at that stage because of the capital imbalance, we had to come up with a playbook for finding the companies that were good fits. And that was the fun part of the first couple of years was figuring it out. And it turns out it's a couple things. It's got to be after product market fit. It's got to have metrics that look a certain way. It's got to be kind of in off the beaten path categories with founders who are a little bit quirky. And so they're, there were a lot of things that we learned, and you know, now seven years later, like we actually really know what we're doing, and it's pretty fun. And how many years in did you kind of figure that out? About two years in. The first year or two, we just knew invest in stuff after their C, but their A. We had no playbook for yeah. what a good one was. So if you look at like our first 15 investments, half of them we would have never done if we knew the playbook. But it turns out the other half that we did do included FanDuel and Ipsy, which wasn't so bad, yeah. <laughs> right? So, you know, when you catch a couple companies like that, they're doing hundreds of millions of revenue a couple of years later, the mistakes that you make 
And these aren't mistakes that we picked the wrong companies. It was that we literally picked things that were out of the scope of the fund. But we didn't know what the scope of the fund was. Yeah. And so once we got to about 2013, though, we started at Christmas of 10, so really 11 and 12. We get to January of 13, though, we, we really know what we're doing. And we're just finding company after company with awesome metrics nobody's paying attention to in an underserved part of the market. What does it mean, though? Like, in this, today's world, I assume if some company is doing well, as you're saying, um, people are looking for underserved markets and they're looking for quirky geographies. So what does that mean for bullpen? Still? I think recently that started to happen. But it sure wasn't happening mm -hmm. in 11 and 12 and 13 and even Agreed. 14. Mm -hmm. So I think over the last two or three years, oh, doing some stuff in the Midwest is not a bad idea. Um, dealing with founders that are husband and wife team shouldn't be a no-no. Like, I'll give you an example. FanDuel was the perfect bullpen deal in a category called fantasy sports that no one ever made any money in. Yeah. From Edinburgh, Scotland, and with a husband and wife founding team. I mean, you just violated like three of the perfect venture rules. And so when Nigel, the CEO, pitched people back in 2011 when we did the deal, he pitched 78 venture funds and got 77 no's. 77 no's, a good 65 of them were before anybody actually even looked at the numbers he was doing because he violated mm, these. Interesting. He, he violated the pattern match. So he didn't even really get the meeting. And so for you, you will take that meeting and then it's your deal to do or not. As not only will we do the meeting, we will pay a lot of attention to the metrics and kind of directly know what the bias in the venture industry is and play against it. Yeah. We know that there are biases against geographies. We know that there are biases against certain founder types, yeah. where they went to school, et cetera. Like another deal is, is Ipsy, and Marcelo uh, was a Stanford uh, MBA, but his co-founder, Michelle, was a, a former cocktail waitress from Florida. Yeah. Right. And so when you're walking up and down Sand Hill Road, and you're like, well, there's this new thing called YouTube, and she's a YouTube celebrity, and they're like, well, where did you go to school? Yeah. Right? You, 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 there's just a mismatch yeah. that happens so right. often because venture is so clubby and chummy and has such a kind of narrow aperture for looking at things yes. that if you open up the aperture, you can find a whole lot of what we call the false negatives in it. So now what? You said things are changing, firms are becoming a little bit more open-minded. How does bullpen stay on its edge? The risk aversion of the A funds yes. has overcome the fact that there are more people doing what we're doing. Yes. So the capital imbalance is arguably worse now than we started the fund, and I think that's one of the big surprises. Like, we thought when we started the fund, this will last for a couple of years, we'll have to figure out other models. Seven years in, we're doing the exact same thing that we did at the beginning, because the A funds have moved the goalposts so arbitrarily far away such that the seed money you raise almost can't possibly get you to the A milestones that they're looking for. Yeah. And that's because the A funds got so greedy and big. And so when your A fund goes from 200 million to 600 million, goes from 600 million to a billion too, I don't care how many people are doing some of the bullpenny type stuff, the goalposts are so far away that we've, we're just still sitting on a massively underserved part of the market. I, I've been talking to some uh, institutional investors and some crazy pieces out there says that there'll be two kinds of funds, the early stage, pre-seed, post-seed kind of funds, and then the growth funds. Everything in between will be kind of, you know, not named, but we'll just, you'll just continue to, the growth will come down and the post-seed will go up and that's where they'll marry. I think that's largely correct. Um, when you really get down to how 
a smaller, higher velocity, earlier stage fund runs from a portfolio construction standpoint and a later stage life cycle fund runs, you start really realizing that there are actual fundamental incompatibilities yeah. with how you need to run your fund in terms of partners' times. Do you sit on board? Yeah. How long are you involved? You almost can't have a fund that does both high velocity or option buying, which is sometimes what we refer to a lot of the early stage models, and life cycle at the same time. Mm -hmm. And so there are your occasional funds, like Iden over at Felicis. He manages to do C day and B. Mm -hmm. That's a pretty unusual person who can yeah. have the discipline to do C day and B. Yeah. There are a couple, but they're few and far between. I think most people will end up being a floodgate first round style early stage fund which even though we're post-seed, we're more of that model than we are of life cycle. Mm -hmm. And then you'll have your life cycle funds, which will be your Greylocks and your Sequoias, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And that you're gonna see these models diverge further apart from each other as opposed to get closer to each other. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I'd say I'm, I'm a subscriber to whoever said that to you by and large. Um, okay, take, let's take it a step back. I think it's like we already got into the details yeah. of like fun making you here. Got, you got dorky pretty good. I know, I, and I like it. I'm almost building up to this question because I don't I don't know how to put it. Your first company was at what, 16? Yeah, 14. 14. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Is it true you built something that you couldn't legally play on your own? That is correct. Le legally is the wrong word because there were no le there were no legal regulations. I mean, this is the online modem days, right? Like you talk about the wild, wild west. Yeah. So so in the bulletin board days of the late 80s, when I started the company, I was, what, 14 years old, 1988, I did 10 or 12 games, and, and the one game had an adult theme, and so most of the system operators would put that behind an age verification question that you were 18 or above. And so, of course, I'm 14 and I wrote the game, and this is just comical to me that I'm not allowed to play the game on most of the systems that run it. And so, yes, that is a 100% true story, and that's... Um, that's from a, a long time ago, but you know that was the Wild West. There were crazy things that went on back then. That's when you know hacking and freaking and people breaking into the uh, overseas dialing codes and uh, <laughs> go just crazy, crazy, unregulated world where there was only a small number of people who even knew what we were talking about. So the idea that law enforcement or the legal could even—they didn't know what we were doing. So was that a good thing for you and the entrepreneurial community? Of course, and it's awesome. And so what's the equivalent of that right now? Is it Bitcoin? Is it, is it Un future? Un unregulated Wild West are great ways to spur innovation. And it doesn't mean that at some point regulation doesn't need to buy yeah. Like, is it really a good idea that a bunch of kids are using international dialing codes and, and calling the Vatican and billing it to someone else? <laughs> That's probably not a good idea. But when those eight kids are the only eight people in the world who know how to do it, how is law enforcement going to stop them from doing it? <laughs> And so having a playground like that for smart kids to play in before it gets well understood and then can be regulated, et cetera. Look, we went through this with FanDuel, one of our great investments, right? It's unregulated Wild West around fantasy sports because fantasy sports by federal law is not deemed to be like other kinds of games. It has aspects of games of skill, et cetera. And so we had to go through a 50-state, state-by-state regulation to, to be in compliance with the federal law. And, you know... It was awesome in the early days, and then the regulators show up, and there's no minuses to the regulators showing up, but at some point that's going to happen. So what's the equivalent of that right now? Well, I think there's, there's always tons of Cannabis is a perfect example right now. So cannabis, by being legalized in certain states, has created in those states 
petri dishes for innovation. Yeah. And you know what? Some of the ideas that those people do are going to get shut down in the future because they're going to they're going to have gone too far. Mm -hmm. So you know, you talk to someone in the pot delivery business and you realize you violated an interstate um, you know uh, delivery co commerce regulation. Yeah. Sure. And you know, guess what's going to happen? People are going to go to jail. Businesses are going to get shut down. But you know what? It's pretty cool that there are pockets of innovation that can get done. And we need to do our best to have these new categories be unregulated for a period of time when they get started. And, you know, eventually, like I said, I, I'm not a complete anarchist. I know that eventually regulation needs to show up for a variety of reasons, legal and otherwise. Um, but that's an example. Bitcoin is certainly an example. Yeah. And guess what? Bitcoin gets used for illicit transactions. Go figure. Yeah. In unregulated currency, it's going to get used for illicit transactions. Yeah. So you made two cannabis investments recently. Yes. And what's your thesis there then? We have become very good at investing in categories that other people are afraid of or potentially have regulation in them. Um, we're, in a, we're in a business on the real estate side that has to deal with broker compliance. We're in FanDuel that has to deal with legal compliance okay. state by state. No, I mean the thesis in cannabis. What's so, so no, uh, so what I'm saying is, I don't think we had the thesis mm. in cannabis. Okay. Can you did the deal because you thought... No, no. Cannabis has characteristics of businesses we've been successful in. A nascent category where regulation is not yet understood. Sure, but there, in there you could do a lot more. So how did you pick what was exciting? So, I don't know that... I understand the question, but I'm, I'm not trying to dodge it. I'm just saying that's not the way we think about it. Having a bet in a space that has characteristics like the ones that we've been in was important to us. Mm -hmm. And so James Conlin, who actually led both of these investments, neither of them are now, so I can't really yeah. go into the details yet, but he knew that from a temperament standpoint, from a supply-demand underserved standpoint, this was a category that fit a lot of the bullpen themes. Mm -hmm. So the way that he decided which of the two companies he elected to go in, I think is less important than that the fund knew that it would make an investment. So it was funny. When we were raising fund three, we would get asked, what are some categories you're excited about? We're like, we, we are not thematic investors. We don't wake up in the morning and say what categories we're in. And when we get pushed by the limited partners, they're like, well, give me some areas of some categories you think you will make investments in. And Eric Wiesen and I would say very frequently, I would not be surprised if in fund three we make some cannabis investments. And we didn't have a thesis, we didn't have a company in mind, yeah. but we knew that that category would have attributes that we would be well qualified to go into because it would scare the crap out of too many other people. Yeah. What else? Bitcoin, cannabis? We haven't done a Bitcoin one. We have done some, we have definitely done some blockchain stuff. Yeah. We haven't found a Bitcoin one that we like, but I don't know why we wouldn't do a Bitcoin. What about the alternate stock markets and all those other Absolutely. Things? We've looked extensively at alternative financial models, alternative payment platforms. Yeah. Um, we've looked extensively at them. We just we haven't found one we like. Um, there are plenty of buckets of, of, of there there are other areas that are getting interesting too, even in uh, say healthcare, you know, telemedicine. Now you sit yeah. there and you go, wait a minute. Well, isn't telemedicine? Well, no, there are aspects of telemedicine that aren't regulated yeah. in the way that the doctor's office is, especially when you do it across state lines, for example. Not a, a category I'm an expert in, but the one, Trudy, the one we're going to look for is the one that's got just enough hair on it to scare everybody else, but has awesome underlying operating metrics 
And so the thesis will be, it's got awesome underlying operating metrics and it scares everybody else. Yeah. As opposed to, I have this theory that in 2027, telemedicine will look like this. Like, you've sat in on our meetings many times. You don't hear us talk like that a lot. A lot of venture firms love to prognosticate about what 2027 will look like. And I have this thesis about self-driving cars in 20 years. And no, no. Next year, the company's going to go from $5 million to $20 million in revenue. Let's just go kick the CEO's butt to make that happen. So there's something very hands-on and practical about the approach. But oh, by the way, do it in the category that if you're right, you really can have a big win because everyone else is scared. So when did you, this is a fun question again, that was the first conversation we had, but like when did you as a fund and individually get confident about your position into here's how we're going to go attack the future? I know the first two years you were not. Mm -hmm. So what was your, were you scared? What was your, like, were you, I'm sure you, everyone doubts themselves, but like how did you handle that as a fund? Okay, so constitutionally, me and my two partners are kind of not the original founding three. Me and Duncan Davis who started COVAD and I worked with a company called Intertrust. Rich Melman who started Electronic Arts with Trip Hawkins and I hung out of his office for a decade. So the three of us are kind of constitutionally built in a different way that enables our model to work very well for us. So was there self-doubt and concern, et cetera, in the first few deals? No. <laughs> and I, I'm not saying that lightly because we went into it with this full acceptance that we were doing something new and different and making mistakes was going to be part of the deal. Like we, we had, we, the, our contract with ourselves about why we started the fund was correct. It wasn't like, let's be scared because we might make a mistake. It was, let's go do stuff and find out what the mistakes were. So most, well, Good, but people often think about the second fund and the third fund and the raise, and it's almost like they're backtracking everything to try to fit that. No, we didn't do it that way. So, so the first fund, our LPs were by and large friends and family, high net worth individuals we worked with before. We said we got a really good idea. If this works, we're going to make you some money, uh, and if it works, we'll come back and ask you for some more. We also didn't have an orientation. None of us had the. What am I doing in fund two and three? There was no fund two, right? This was a startup company, and if it worked, we would then ask ourselves what we would do next. Mm -hmm. So we didn't all wake up one day and go, I want to be a venture person, and I need to create a 10-year enterprise, and I need to get institutional investors who will back funds two, three, and four. This was an experiment, and if it worked, we would then decide what to do. But the day it got exciting was about 18 or 20 months in when we could clearly identify what the winners and losers were in the portfolio, and there was such a clean set of metrics for how we could determine what our winners and losers in our own portfolio were, that's when we started getting excited that, okay, by making that, those mistakes and having latitude to do deals, we were able to spot the pattern so cleanly. And about halfway through fund one, we're like, wow, we're on something that's gonna be really cool. That's when we started really talking to institutional investors, which took a while to get them excited, but. That was the point at which we're like, no, okay, we're on to something that's enduring, and we can actually point to the reasons why it's enduring, what the characteristics of our company were. And that was really cool, because at that point, when you could look back and back test your own fund and say these were the mistakes, yeah. that, that, was, that was a pretty important day in the fund. So you're like one of the most contrarian guys I know, especially in venture. I take that it's as a, a compliment. It's a big compliment, actually, because there, I don't see groupthink when I'm in those meetings. 
but you also geographically live in a in a city, mm-hmm. Philly, yeah. that uh, most people wouldn't even think of setting up an office there. Well, I don't have an office. I just work out of my house when I'm there. <laughs> but there is but a, there is there is this guy. You didn't guy, move. The the question. There is this guy named Josh Conley yes. who does this. Yes. It turns out he lives in the Philly suburbs. He's pretty good at this. No, so I, I say he, that... He both scooped up all the best deals in Philly. Yeah, no, I, I say that jokingly because, um, you know, Josh has been a tremendous mentor and friend of our fund, and uh, a, a, lot of, a lot of things that we learned were as the result of me being one of the early LPs in his fund. So first round got started mm-hmm. in 04, and I'm in one of the earliest funds. I think I got in 05, 06. And I learned a tremendous amount by being an LP in his fund because that's a bit of how I learned venture business. I encourage entrepreneurs or early stage entrepreneurs to become small LPs in other funds because learning that side of the fence is super helpful. Understanding how to grow your business, understanding the mindset of your investor, et cetera. And so by the time it turned out that going into venture is what I wanted to do, there was this corpus of knowledge I had learned by osmosis over the prior seven years. Um, And so... My wife and I always wanted to live somewhere other than the Bay Area. It was not a temperament fit for her or I. And so moving back to where I originally grew up was, was a good choice. She's from rural Alabama, so that was not exactly where she wanted to go back. Even though she loves it there, parents are still there. We go there frequently. From a job opportunity yeah. perspective, it wasn't a good fit. So the logical spot on the board was to go back to where I was from, where we had family, helped watch the kids, etc. And... In many ways, when you're running a venture fund, having some geographic diversity of partners is actually pretty helpful. Uh, yeah, good, you have the New York deals, you're just there. 20, 25% of our deals are in kind of the DC, New York quarter. So somebody's there. Yeah. So this is a feature, not a bug. And I, I had to explain that many a time to our limited partners. And luckily, there are enough other funds that now have set up this mm-hmm. way that we didn't sound all that crazy when we said that this mm-hmm. was a feature, not a bug. Anyway. Um, and then I guess one last one. You were probably the only VC who didn't want to be a VC. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that is that is a very true statement. Mike Maples is the guy who really got the last laugh on me. As I told you at the beginning of the story, he kind of was like, I want you to join Floodgate, come be a partner. And then once we did this math and figured out the thing, Mike kind of literally like starts chuckling. He's like, you know, Paul, the only way you're ever gonna make money on this is you gotta go start your own fund. <laughs> And it was, it was absolutely not what I wanted to do. I had no interest in the lifestyle. I had no interest in, oh, it's my turn to be on the other side of the fence. You talk to so many venture people, their motivations for being in venture were my time to be on the other side of the fence, give back to the entrepreneurial community, blah, blah, blah. None of those were my motivations. Mine was, there's an entrepreneurial endeavor, and it happens to be in this asset plus called venture capital. I haven't done one in games once before. I haven't done one in ad tech before. Yeah. The innovation I've come up with happens to be in venture capital. And it frustrated me, like internally, yeah. that I had to become a venture capitalist to take advantage of our insight. Yeah. Um, I, I'm now cooler with it because I now have the two aspects of the entrepreneurial aspect of running the fund and actually the skills to run a fund. Uh, but it, it bugged me. And it actually also kind of bugged me that so many of the other people seem to go into the business for all the wrong reasons. Like, are there really a set of entrepreneurs asking you to give back? Can you send me the list of the people who have said to you, I really, I really want you to be in the business? Like, there's a certain self-aggrandizement and importance to so many who said that to me. I was kind of like, really? I kind of call a little BS on that. No one sent me those letters. 
So. Oh my god. I have no words. <laughs> but you know what I'm talking about. You've met yeah. that venture person mm -hmm. a lot of times. Like, you are still an entrepreneur trying to innovate and do interesting things in, in venture. And, and a lot of the I'm other still funds, a startup fund. Right. And yeah. a lot of the other funds, you kind of are like, it was that part of my life. I'm like, really? That's the best. Like, I would hate. I don't want you to be on my board because it's that part of my life. Like, I want you to be on my board because, like, you're ass kicking at what you do. Um, wow. That leads me to this question. You were one of the first people to give me advice at that amazing, fancy Panera Bread. I took, yeah, I, I take everybody on yeah. the fancy place. Yes. And it was, um, I was coming to you because I said, I'm going to start doing this. Um, I want everyone to kind of hear that advice. There's, like, what, 300 and... 80 plus seed funds just in the Bay Area right now, right? Well, 300, 380 across the U.S. Across the U.S. But okay, I think like I'm meeting a new person every week. Oh yeah. So what's your advice like with mark? Not like just you know how to run a fund and such, but like with market trading the way it is. What's your advice for everyone starting this out as as an investor? It's like I'm seeing two types. One is like a branch out of a bigger fund. And I want to do something of my own. Mm -hmm. And the I was a founder, and I think I have a good deal flow. Mm -hmm. What's your thoughts on all that? And what advice do you have for all these folks who should you know should succeed or like for them to succeed? My advice is don't start a fund. So so this will come as no this this will come as no surprise to you. If everybody's doing something, you need to stop doing it. If no one's doing something, you need to start doing it. And so when we start a bullpen, maybe there's 40 funds. Mm -hmm. We went from 40 to almost 400. Do you want to be 389? You know what? I don't care. You could be the most gifted investor of your generation. Do you want to be number 389? So what's that alternate thing right now, according to you? What, so, so If you were not doing bullpen, what would you do? So I don't think that's the right question. The right question is this. If I want to go start the 405th fund now, and I could be an entrepreneur and go start a company right now, I'd go start a company right now, and wait until the cycle was more in my advantage to go start the fund. I gave this advice, advice to Matt Window. Um, Matt has also been on our advisory board, and, and Matt and I had a great series of discussions. He was an early Facebook employee, he's about employee 50, and then he left Facebook along the way to go to Uber, and I helped him a lot in his decision process about when to leave and what to do next. And he told me, he said, Paul, you gave me one of the best pieces of advice ever in my career, which was I was trying to decide, should I become a venture person? Should I start a fund or should I go to another company? You so that's like a decision everyone I know is trying to make. So here's the thing that I told him that the fact that he appreciated it so much made me realize that he hadn't heard it from anybody else. Hmm. Not that I was so genius in saying it, but no one else had given him this advice. Pay attention to where you are in the entrepreneurial cycle for the business that you're going to go into. So if you're in a spot where the number of venture funds went from 40 to 400, is that a good time to start a venture fund? Probably not. If you're in a situation where a bunch of early stage companies are now coming to maturity and they're in desperate need for senior executives, guess what, Matt? Go hold Uber hostage. Take a job there because you're going to get the biggest overlay for where you are in the cycle. You have a bunch of companies that are now becoming of age who have massive holes in their management teams, you could go fill it. He ended up taking the Uber job because he played out, if I'm a venture person, I'm one of a lot. If I'm a new fund, I'm one of too many. If I use my executive skill and go to Uber, I am, uh, I am the commodity. Yeah. 
So this is this to me is the key. Like, why start a business where you're an also ran? Mm -hmm. Start a business, whatever it is, where you are a natural commodity, which yeah. is your advantage. And so in Matt's case, it was to go to a bigger company that needed the talent. Mm -hmm. So my advice to I want to be the 405th fund is I don't care how good you are, it doesn't matter. But I've got deal flow. I don't care. <laughs> literally. I literally don't care. And you might be you might be the best of your generation. But don't start your fund until two years from now mm -hmm. when the 400 started to go back down to 300 mm -hmm. because we're in the consolidation phase and it's not as cool anymore and people are disenchanted with it. Then go do it. Mm -hmm. So I'm not saying, so you're awesome, you have great deal flow, and you're going to be one of the best ever. Just wait two years to go do it. I promise you it will be easier for you to do it to wait two years. So go start a company in between. Go, go be a beach bum for a year or two. Just don't do it when you're not getting a natural overlay because of the supply demand imbalance of the talent going after the business you want to be in. This is some of the best advice we've gotten on this podcast. I feel like I could continue for another two hours. We will do another episode soon. Thank you, Paul. How does one reach out to you on Twitter? Or Just send me an email. Paul at bullpencap.com.